scripture this morning is Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for the life of Jesus Christ, his ministry and teaching. And Lord, this morning we come to you hungry and thirsty. If we don't come to you hungry and thirsty, we pray for the appetite for your love, for your righteousness. We ask you to nourish us and fill us. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm going to talk about Henry Nouwen, and I think that's the wrong way to pronounce his name. But I'm just going to do it anyway. So that's my disclaimer. Henry Nouwen. He was Dutch. He was sort of a superstar. At least he was born into a superstar family. Uh, his parents were in the upper crust of Dutch society, and um, he was raised in that, hobnobbed with ambassadors, uh, summered in Switzerland. Um, uh, he came to America, came to the States, and when he came here, he was uh, quickly elevated to sort of the rock star status. Um, he was requested, widely sought after. Um, he taught at Yale. And he taught at Harvard, and um, uh, during one period of his life, he was getting 40 requests for speaking a month. Um, a guy like that, you would think, would have all the answers. And um, what I want to talk about this morning is uh, the Beatitudes through the lens of Henry Nouwen, and especially his letters. Um, but one thing his letters reveal is that he essentially had no answers. People would write to him for um, answers to their problems all the time. They would write to him about chronic illness. They'd write to him about vocational struggles, not knowing what they should do with their life. They'd write to him about marital problems. They wrote, wrote to him about doubt. They wrote to him about deep loneliness, problems with sexuality, you name it. And he has no answers for them. No answers at all. 
What he offers people instead is the wisdom that we find in the Beatitudes. What is Beatitude wisdom? Well, let's look at the Beatitudes first and try to understand the, the context. We're in chapter 5 of Matthew, and so by this point, Jesus has already kind of introduced himself. He's been on the scene. And what has he been up to? He's been healing. He's been forgiving. He's been becoming this graceful presence in the world. He is the light shining in the world. He is the grace of God being poured out on people like us, regular folks. He is with people. He's with people. He's not organizing. He's not setting up any institutions. He's not um, strategic planning for the future. He's with people. And lives are transformed. People are set free. His presence is liberating. And now he, he's on a mountain and he sees the people and he wants to teach them. He wants to teach them something. And he's going to give them a law. There's no other word for this than law. Um, we Protestants, mo not everybody here is Protestant, but most of us are Protestants. And we Protestants, or Vatican II Catholics too, okay. So um, we're all, we all know the problems with law. We all recognize that there are issues with law. But this is what he's giving. He says, I've not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. So just as Moses first led the people out of slavery, out of Egypt, first he liberates them, and then he gives them a law, the Ten Commandments, that's precisely what Jesus is doing. He has delivered them from the darkness, he has shown the light, he has released them and given them freedom, and now he is going to impart a law, and that's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We all know the problem with a law. A law is exactly how you end up back in captivity. A law is a surefire way to end up back in condemnation, into slavery. We don't follow the law and then we are condemned. We mess up, we fail, and we are buried in our guilt. How can Jesus free us one day and then sentence us again the next day? This is the wisdom of the Beatitudes. This is why we need them. The Beatitudes are situated right between these two things, between the grace of his early ministry and the law of the Sermon on the Mount. Without it, the Sermon on the Mount is incomprehensible. In fact, all of Jesus's ministry won't make sense apart from the Beatitudes. This is the wisdom of the Beatitudes. All the problems that we have, our poverty, our loneliness, all of our weaknesses, whether it be disability, whether it be meekness, whether it be neurodiversity, all the good work that we do, our peacemaking, our caregiving, even the awful ways that we can be treated by other people, they are not problems to be solved, but gateways into God's love. <clears throat> For some of you, there's like a red flag going off. You're like, ah, wait, 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 wait. You know, I'm a caregiver, and I think we should solve problems. Um, some of you have like internal alarms ringing. Like, if there's a problem to solve, we should solve it. 
This is where I think a guy like Henry Nouwen can help us. He never says, don't solve your problems. He never says that. If there's an obvious answer, of course we should solve it. But people writing to him are writing because they have hit a wall. The way forward is blocked. Not every problem, it turns out, can be solved. What then? Well, most of us, at this point, most of us will turn to God and we will say, God, now it's your turn. I can't find the solution. The experts around me can't find the solution. God, now you, it's your turn to fix it. And with great care and tenderness, now and essentially says to us, perhaps, but perhaps God was going to deal with your problem not in the way that you imagine. A young man is deeply lonely because he has not found a partner in life. Now and says, I think God has someone for you, but please be patient and remember our deep loneliness is our gateway to the love our world hungers for. Another man, or I'm sorry, a, a husband and wife are, are getting older and they're, one of them is dealing with chronic illness, the other is dealing with some other spiritual issues. And he says this to them, it seems important for both of you to keep holding on to conviction that the Lord loves you, that he is active in your lives here and now, and that the many pains you are struggling with are not outside of his knowledge of care. Somewhere, he is doing something lovingly to you, even when what you experience is only hurt. Is he carving out a cave to dwell in? If so, the cutting away of rocks might hurt very much, and you might not be aware of the space he is creating for himself. I have more. See, I should have had AI do this. It would be, I, I'd do it. Um, there's a man who writes to now and he, and he says, he says, you know, I, I, I get what you're saying about intimacy. It sounds great, but how will I ever know God's intimacy if I've never experienced intimacy myself in my life? Not from my parents, not from a partner, not from friends. I have never experienced it in my entire life. Now and writes to him, many of your experiences in your life might enable you to more fully understand the true meaning of giving, receiving, and love. Um, someone else writes to him about a loss of faith. They, as a young person, they were uh, close to God. They went to church. They had a deep connection to the Lord. And then as they get older, that um, separated and severed, and they don't feel connected to God anymore. And yet they're writing to now and um, wondering about this severing. And he says, there is a deep connection between recognizing and disappearing. He's referring to the Emmaus story. This is the story when um, uh, Jesus is resurrected and he's uh, meeting with some disciples who, and uh, he breaks thread with them, the community with them. And it's at that moment that he disappears. So there's a deep mystery in that story. And so he's referring to that. And he's saying there's a deep connection between recognizing and disappearing between presence and absence between knowing and not knowing. 
I often wonder if for those who really leave their life, there is not a real crisis to be faced that comes out in the later years. Is a crisis like loneliness, a loneliness we should not try to get rid of, which is the place where we can rediscover Jesus. Not the Jesus who we knew in the past, but the spirit of Jesus who can really fill our hearts and helps us live in the midst of a mad world. Um, a lifelong friend of his is writing to him about old age and all the humiliations that come with it, all the, all the things that you just don't want to happen, the, the sort of sapping away of, of strength and, and all the things that you once loved and, and, um, and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, that you just relished, relished about life. And now instead, perhaps you can think of old age as transition from success to fruit. Yeah, isn't that good? Um, from, from competition to compassion. From doing to being. From asking to praising. Getting old because it's an opportunity for a second child. And night a day, it's a phrase he gets from Paul Ricoeur. And it's the, this idea of, of just being born again. Born again. I know we could just do this all morning, but I'm going to do one more. One more. Um, <laughs> So one of, one of the things I've done here, Pete, well, one of the things I did when I started is uh, I inherited this sort of, uh, we could call it a gift card ministry or benevolent. And what it is, is we just, we get a set amount of gift cards every week and people will call us up and they'll say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm just in for some help. Do you have any money or things like that? And uh, we have a set amount of gift cards every month that we'll hand out. The deal is you have to meet with Eddie. You have to, you can't just come and get your card. You have to hang out with me, which is a real bummer for people, I think. And so, um, so what ends up happening is we don't have a huge amount of people ask for cards. Um, uh, but the people who do have been coming every month for about nine years. And I've, I've gotten to know them. And what ends up happening, the experience is, is now and explains it better than I've ever uh, been able to comprehend. But the experience is not me helping them. Um, the experience is me listening. Um, but we have no answers. And this, being, uh, for a long time, it was a source of frustration. And I'm, I'm sort of turning in that now. But, um, but, but deeply complex lives are being presented to me. Deeply complex. So someone writes to now and about something similar. It's a young couple. They're running a food pantry. One of the problems in the food pantry is that uh, people are taking advantage of it. People are just taking advantage of this very benevolent, very generous ministry. And he says, sometimes we have to dare to be fools for Christ. That means that sometimes we have to be willing to give food to people who don't really need or deserve it. And sometimes we're willing to work with some people who might even exist. Maybe that is as close as we can come to an experience of self-emptying. It is the experience of being useless in the presence of the Lord. One thing I love about that idea is, is he's, he's saying, I wonder, maybe, perhaps. Um, he's not, you know, he's not laying down the law. He's not like, you're wrong, this is right, listen to me. He's saying, let's explore this together. Because one approach to life is to approach in terms of problems to solve, and then the other approach to life is to explore history. And that seems to be what Nowen is doing. Not every problem can be solved, then what? We have to walk into a mystery. That is essentially what I think is encapsulated in 
the Beatitudes. It is precisely because God is with us that even poverty, deprivation, and persecution are states of blessedness. Because God accepts us as children, our times of loss and sorrow become invitations to deeper communion with our Lord. And this turns out to be what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. How can we forgive? God has forgiven us. How can we love our enemies? God loves us and sometimes we are his enemy. How can we worry about nothing? God is revealed in Jesus and Jesus cares for his flock. The law is not a way to win God's love. The law is what's possible in light of God's love. Now, in, as I said earlier, Nowen lived in many ways a life of privilege, but he sought something he called inward mobility. He sought his whole life to be empty in order to be filled with God. Both his faults and his talents and become ever nearer the heart of God. You could say that in some way, throughout his whole life, Nowen embraced each of the Beatitudes. He was at the top of his field and he became poor. He went and worked in Lima, in the slum of Lima, Peru. He went to work for a place called Daybreak, which was a, a home for people with severe mental and physical disabilities and was the primary caregiver for one of the, for one of the people there. He was a man who grieved. He grieved many things. He grieved uh, the loss of his family. He grieved the loss of his culture. He was not accepted in Dutch society. Um, but he fully felt like he fit in in America. He was devoted to peacemaking. He was and still is a person who's persecuted for many things. But he was merciful to his detractors, and he was meek despite his considerable powers. But he would stop this exact conversation. He would stop it, and he would say, to be empty is not to look at me, Hanawan, but instead to look at Christ. That's finally who the Beatitudes describe. God not only became all these things, but was revealed as these things. Revealed as revealed as merciful, revealed as grieving for his people, revealed as grieving for the dead, meek before the powers, his only appetite for the Father's will, a pure heart, persecuted, killed. That's Jesus. That's who God is revealed as. And so our suffering, our pain, our longing is a gateway because Christ is the gateway to blessedness, happiness, and joy. Jesus doesn't come merely to solve our problems, but to be a companion in the midst of every sorrow. And because he is with us, to transform every sorrow into blessing. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for the gateway that is Christ, the one who is the way, truth, and life. Father, in this, in this quiet, in this silence, we ask you to help us sit in the love and the acceptance and the embrace of you and your Son through the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.